Welcome to Left Out, of reality-based independent radio on WRCT 88.3 FM. I'm uh, Bob Harper. I'm Danny Slater. And today's program is produced by Matt Horniak. Uh, listeners, as usual, are invited to uh, call the program at 412-268-9728-268-WRCT. Or we also monitor electronic mail during the show, and you can send mail to us by sending mail to bob at leftout.info. Normally there's maybe a couple of minutes, a few minutes delay for electronic mail to reach us, so keep that in mind if you send to us. A uh, couple of announcements, as usual, to begin the show. Uh, one is to remind everyone to listen to Democracy Now! on WRCT at uh, 8 a.m. on weekday mornings, every morning. It was brought to you by the Pittsburgh Campaign for Democracy Now! And I also mentioned that we've uh, established a, a podcast uh, repository on the Left Out homepage, which is leftout.info, just one word, leftout.info. And you can listen to all the previous programs from Left Out uh, by, uh, by looking at the archive there and using our, our we've now set up uh, an RSS feed for those of you who want to download it onto your your iPod or similar device. Uh, I want to mention that I've been away for a couple of weeks. I was out of the country for a while. I'm getting back uh, in order, but I listened on my iPod to uh, to the last week's or the last program two weeks ago on September 20th in which the guests were Norm Solomon, who's the author of a recent book called War Made Easy, and Bernard Chazelle, who is a computer scientist at Princeton, who's also become quite famous for his writings, uh, notably uh, an essay called Bush's Desolate Imperium. And I listened to the show uh, uh, yesterday, and I was very impressed. I think it was great, so I recommend to all of our listeners to uh, to download it and uh, and listen and listen to it uh, listen to it at your leisure. Okay. So uh, today we have a couple of guests um, on. Uh, we'll be talking about um, with uh, with the guests about uh, uh, issues with elections and voting, and then um, later on in the show we'll be talking about. Some other topics, including CMU's controversial speakers policy uh, and uh, other recent things, such as delay b- uh, being indicted for money laundering, uh, Judy Miller, and uh, the terrorism attacks in Bali, if we have time. But the first part of our show, we'll be talking about uh, voting issues um, with uh, guests Richard King and Pamela Smith. Um, so um, Richard is uh, a local activist uh, here in, in Pittsburgh. And he's uh, very interested in the issues uh, surrounding voter ver- verifiable paper ballots. And um, he's uh, collecting, uh, trying to uh, generate a movement uh, for that uh, in, in Pennsylvania. Um, and uh, Pamela Smith is the nationwide coordinator for an organization called verifiedvoting.org. Um, and um, sh- this is an organization. Um, in California, which is uh, it's a national organization trying to get uh, verified voting laws passed uh, in, in as many states as possible. Um, so, um, Pamela, are you there? I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. That's great. And Richard? I'm here. Great. So, um, we've got a lot of things to talk about and um, a lot of things going on. So, um, maybe, uh, maybe uh, well, either Pamela or Richard... Um, why don't you start, Pamela, with just um, what is it that uh, is the point of uh, verified voting? And, and um, sure. give a brief summary of that. Sure, let me jump in. Um, verified voting basically works to promote uh, transparent, reliable, publicly verifiable elections nationwide. And what we do is we focus primarily on the voting systems that people use and how they're used. 
so that voters and candidates and election officials and the general public all have a sense that the votes are being counted accurately and completely uh, by those voting systems that are in use. Um, we look at this as a nonpartisan issue in the sense that it doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, a Green or a Libertarian, you, you want your vote to count. If you lose because you didn't win enough hearts and minds, you know what your, what, what your work is, what you have to do. But if you didn't win because of voting system problems, then that's a major problem that affects everyone. So what we do is we work on getting legislation passed to try and ensure that every state has basic safeguards in those voting systems. They should have specifically a voter-verified paper record, uh, mandatory random manual audits that ensure that the voting systems are working how they should work, and a provision that makes that voter-verified document the official document in case of a discrepancy if you have a machine count that's different from your hand count. Um, and that's kind of, those are kind of the basic key points that you have to have as a baseline. Um, we also work with states, uh, we do this federally, we work with the individual states on passing their own bills on this issue, and Pennsylvania is obviously a very important state, and the good news is we've just gotten uh, the word recently, this past uh, couple of weeks, that there is a bill in Pennsylvania's legislature, and uh, uh, Representative Dan Frankel introduced HB 2000, and I know that um, Richard will tell you more about that as well. But that's, that's kind of the background behind what we okay. do. Okay. I, so, I wondered if you might explain for our listeners uh, just what, what you mean by, the, uh, by a verified voting machine and paper and how that would all work. Sure. Um, most of us have voted in the past on, well, there, in Pennsylvania there's quite a variety of different voting systems, but we've had everything from a, a plain paper ballot that's hand-marked and hand-counted to punch cards to uh, lever machines to... Uh, electronic voting machines to optical scan ballots, which are the kind that you use when you take a standardized test, for example, and you mark a little bubble on a piece of paper and that gets scanned by an electronic scanner. Um, all these different types of voting systems, what you need to be able to do, the voter needs to be able to ensure that it was, first of all, marked accurately. And when you're marking it yourself, you have a good opportunity to do that. If you're using an electronic interface like a voting machine, um, you don't know that what you're punching in on the screen is actually being recorded in the system. You don't have any way to know because you can't see the electronics behind the screen. So what you need to have is an independent record that shows you that it's recorded your votes accurately, and that would be your voter-verified paper record. And it would print out at the time that you're voting so you can actually see it and check. If it's not right, you could say, hey, this isn't right, I get to start over. And... Um, and then that record gets retained just like any other ballot uh, in the polling place and is used to make sure that the machines are then counting accurately. So, so, but, I mean, it would defeat the purpose of a machine if you had to recount every single ballot. So that's not the proposal you're making. Um, that's, that's partly true. Uh, you don't necessarily need to count every single piece of paper to make sure that the machines are counting accurately. However, you can take a statistical percentage uh, and compare machine counts with hand counts and make sure that, that they are working as so, they're supposed so to. And this <clears throat> has been done with optical scan systems for decades now. Okay, so, um, so, so, another, so an optical scan system is where you mark your ballot with, with a, piece of, a piece of paper ballot with some marks, stick it into a scanner, it reads the marks, it shows you a screen that says, okay, you just voted for, for these 
you know, these votes? It doesn't necessarily do that. It doesn't show you, uh, the scanner doesn't do that, but you as the voter have a chance to look at it while you're marking it and go, yeah. oh, wait a minute, that's not my candidate. Okay. I can start over. Okay, so, so, so it can um, tell you if you've overvoted, though. Yeah. You've accidentally chosen too many. I see. So, uh, so then the, the scheme would be that, well, you would then, uh, in any election, you would then uh, pick a random subset of a percentage, like 5% of the precincts well, or something. Right. And then you would hand count those and compare them to the electronic counts. Right. And if they were close, that would be that would be good. And if they weren't not close, then you would have a real reason to be skeptical of the electronic count, either through mali- some malicious uh, reprogramming of the machine or a um, or a computer error of some sort, software error of some sort. Right. Now I should so make we should it like, clear we should Richard, that we, should, we don't Richard necessarily think that, that those electronic machines are the best way to vote. When you mark a piece of paper. If the scanner's down, you've still had a chance to, to mark your ballot. If an electronic machine is down, people have to stand in line and wait until somebody makes it work again. Yeah. So, so let's get Richard in here. Um, it might be very helpful simply to start um, for our embarkation on this uh, topic to talk about um, House Bill 2000, which Representative Dan Frankel introduced on September 26th. And the goal of House Bill 2000 is to introduce a voter-verified paper ballot record with all of the electronic voting machines, which will be uh, certified for use after January 1, 2006. So across Pennsylvania, across our nation, we're um, replacing uh, voting technologies that have been used for 20, 30 years with electronic voting machines, which... um, uh, as Pam pointed out, um, often lack a voter-verified paper ballot. And what we'd like to do is require that the voter have a look at a paper record of their vote. And in House Bill 2000, what happens is uh, the voter has a chance to review the paper record. And once they're satisfied that the record is as intended, uh, they continue with the voting process and actually cast an electronic ballot. Now, 5% of the precincts, if this bill is enacted into law, 5% of the precincts will undergo something called a, a paper audit in which the paper um, in 5% of the precincts will be compared, will be counted up by hand count and compared with the electronic tally. And hopefully those tallies of the electronic and the paper hand count will match, and that will give voters terrific confidence in their uh, electronic systems that they're actually uh, operating properly, that there's no inaccuracies or fraud. Now, it's important and that those precincts be chosen at random. Otherwise, the fraud could simply be moved to the non, non-recounted precincts. So obviously there's got to be a random selection that nobody knows about somehow in there. Correct. And it has to be, um, the details of this have yet to be hammered out. Um, The bill was introduced into the legislature, into the House of Representatives, and it needs to go through committee, in which case there'll be uh, lots of opportunity for thinking through the details and consequences of the bill. So suppose there is a discrepancy, then what is the procedure? Is it outlined in the the bill, or or what is is envisioned for doing a recount in that case? In the... Go ahead, Pam. Well, I was going to say that typically um, if there is a, dis- well, in the language of the bill, if there is a discrepancy, then the county board of elections uh, 
counts additional precincts to see if they can resolve the concern and, and ensure that the count is accurate. But um, in, in overall, if there's a discrepancy, the paper count should govern. Mm -hmm. And what you want to do is if you see a discrepancy, then you want to know how widespread is it, which is why you would then correspondingly look at more precincts um, to see, well, is it just anomalies in this precinct? Uh, maybe something went wrong with the machines, or is this something that's wider? And, uh, but it gives an opportunity to see whether the machines are functioning as they should. I see. So really, we're looking at something that's not much more complicated than your everyday commonplace ATM machine. Is that right? Um, well, voting systems are pretty complicated. Uh, part of the problem you have with voting systems is you have to be able to keep things secret, and uh, so it makes the sort of auditing a little you know, a little tricky because there's no you can't sort of match up this person's name with that person's name, even with their name on the electronic record. But what you are doing is checking the count of the votes, and the paper record would be the true and correct record of the votes cast in the in the final analysis. So, um, but yeah, it's it's there are different. Systems. There are different ways to produce that voter verified paper record. Some of the designs are better than others. Some of them use uh, paper stock that could be just the same as uh, an actual paper ballot type stock, and some of them use these sort of thermal paper rolls. Mm -hmm. um, you know, which if you've ever handled ATM receipts, you know <laughs> that can be problematic. But but uh, ideally, as I said, you want something that starts with paper rather than just using an electronic machine because it just it's that much simpler. So there was a, something interesting you told me yesterday was a, a lot. There's a lot of resistance. Well, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves, but there is resistance to this this whole thing. And actually, Richard was talking about uh, some people he's talked to as well who who have expressed grave reservations about the the, the, the you know the, these types of uh, the bills we're talking about. Um, one of the things that um, you you told me uh, yesterday was you talked about how the um, a lot of the people who are judging these things and and you know the, the people in the voting business. Uh, they can't imagine, they don't know anything about software and about how systems are developed and how security issues and, and uh, Trojan horses and other, all this very, you know, sophisticated uh, techniques for hacking um, uh, work. So they don't know how to do it, so they sort of dismiss it as being impossible in their mind. Right. I, it's, you know, I make the analogy, I don't know how to do brain surgery either, but I know that there are people who do, and, I, you know, we would rely on that if there was a need <laughs> Um, the bottom line is, uh, you know, somebody can build the electronic system, somebody can uh, manipulate it as well, and, and not just everybody can do it perhaps, but, you know, for as long as we've had elections, we've had election fraud of some kind or another. In the past, it's happened on paper uh, ballots, for example, but that doesn't mean that because it's an electronic ballot, it can't be manipulated. Truthfully, though, I worry a lot uh, more about things like uh, malfunction, and I've seen malfunctioning equipment disenfranchise literally thousands of voters for the simple lack of having paper ballots. And yeah. I think, you know, paper never fails to boot up. You know, <laughs> why not start from a paper ballot? Yeah. If, if you had an all-electronic uh, precinct, you'd still need to have paper ballots for your absentee voting. You'd still need to print paper ballots for provisionals in most cases. Uh, for provisional ballots, and you still need to have emergency paper ballots in case the machines break down. So why not just start with paper ballots? Let me just mention a couple of websites here um, for uh, these issues. There's uh, the, the, the local website that um, Richard King has put together, pa-verifiedvoting.org. 
if about I, what's going on in Pennsylvania. If I could plug that website, uh, pa-verifiedvoting.org, if you go there and enter your contact information, it will automatically send your legislator uh, letter requesting, urging their support for House Bill 2000. Um, and soon we will have another bill in the Senate. Um, so that website will then be emailing the senators as well, urging their um, support for uh, the similar bill, which will be submitted in the Senate in the next couple of weeks. So also all the links that we talk about are, will be on the, are, are all currently on the leftout.info website for today's program. Um, so um, You asked about resistance, and I, I just wanted to mention that I think that uh, over time, the tide is turning. Um, more and more people, the more they think about it, the more they understand that computers without that safeguard of paper uh, record are not safe to use for elections. And in fact, now over half the states in the country have a requirement for a voter-verified paper record. Pennsylvania, um, up until the last couple of weeks, was one of only 11 that had yet to introduce some kind of measure to, to uh, you know, to look at in the legislature. So. Um, now we're down to 10, and of those 10, uh, probably two or three are still pretty much all paper ballot states anyway, using optical scan uh, statewide. So so we're very happy to know about the introduction of HB 2000 because it's going to make a big difference. Well, that's uh, so that's one perspective, but I guess I can't help but, but point out that some of the most uh, uh, active and, and, and vocal opponents to voter verified paper trail are people who are actually experts on the technology. So here at CMU, there's a professor of computer science named uh, Michael Seamus, who is, uh, would be as knowledgeable as any, as any of us about how the insides of these machines work, and uh, is certainly firmly opposed to uh, the uh, voter verified uh, paper trail. And also uh, professor Ted, at the um, Media Lab, Ted Selker at the Media Lab. Uh, at MIT, is al- who also, I think, is clearly an expert on the technology, uh, is uh, strongly opposed to it. And, I, and since it seems like such a common-sense measure, uh, this kind of, I wonder where where is the opposition coming from and, and you know, a, what's going that's on That's a real that? good question. I, I mean, I've, I've met Ted Selker mm-hmm. uh, recently in Pasadena when uh, David Dill, who's the founder of our organization, who's a computer science professor at Stanford University, right. uh, was there to testify, as was Ted Selker, on this issue. And interestingly, Ted Selker doesn't object to the concept of verification of the electronic record through some alternate means. Um, his position is simply that it, maybe it doesn't have to be paper. And we believe that paper does resolve the problem at this point in time more effectively than any other possible alternative. And some of the possible alternatives uh, are, they're not well developed enough at this point to be used, and even if they do become more developed, the problem is they may be even be more complicated than the original problem. Uh, for example, a cryptographic solution. Well, you know, I yeah. can barely say it, much less explain it to a layperson, <laughs> and if yeah, it doesn't yeah. give them confidence, they're not going to believe that their election was legitimate. And that's and a very that's really the part bottom of it. line here. That is absolutely key. Transparency in our election system is one of the most important aspects because it will maintain uh, voter confidence in the systems. Um, if I said to you that I could build a bank that could never be robbed, would would that make sense to you? I mean, if you can if you can talk about the possibility of uh, creating an election system which is absolutely fraud proof, um, I. I doubt that, that such a thing th- could ever be created simply 
for the same reasons that a bank that could never be robbed could be created. Now, the question is, is would our system of elections be transparent enough, given a cryptographic system, for for uh, fraud to be detected, um, and could you guarantee that? And what paper ballots do for us is they give us a guaranteed way of auditing our system of elections and confirming in a publicly observable fashion whether or not the electronic systems are working properly. So yeah. transparency is <clears throat> well, a, a large portion of, of what voter-verified paper ballots do. Yeah. I, I also wanted to say about Professor Shameless, too, is that he's written some stuff in the past about um, the security problems with uh, with these kinds of systems. And, um, in fact, he even testified to Congress uh, last year that the the state of our testing and certification process in in the country, the federal testing and certification that voting systems go through, is so abysmally bad as to be virtually non-existent. I mean, it's as if it might as well not be there as far as testing for security issues. So I'm not sure where uh, you know his resistance to using paper comes from, um, but I do think that it is something, as Richard says, it's transparent to everyone. Um, if I hold up a piece of paper that clearly shows that candidate A was marked, everyone can see that. But no one can see, you know, the electronic system nor a cryptographic uh, verification of it to know that that really was. And right. it's not so just for me to know that my vote was accurately recorded. I want to know that Richard's vote was accurately recorded, too, and Danny's <laughs> vote. I want to know that everyone's vote was properly recorded and counted, not just mine. I'd, yes. I'd like to step in on behalf of Dr. Seamus and say, well, he's probably looking at a tremendous history of vote fraud that has gone on for probably as long as elections have gone on. And uh, having seen paper ballots misused in fraudulent elections for uh, a, a long history, he's probably just taken that position that paper does not add security. However, when you combine electronic voting with the paper audit trail and the voter-verified paper audit trail, I believe that the ability to create transparency and accountability creates the strongest system possible. So we are talking with uh, Richard King and Pamela Smith. Richard King is running an organization called paverifiedvoting.org, and Pamela Smith is representing as a national coordinator for the national organization verifiedvoting.org, and we're talking about uh, the voter-verified paper trail um, and particularly about House uh, Bill 2000. Did you say the number uh, was, Richard? So I wonder if you could tell us uh, where that oh, you bill could, You can call us, by the way. Stands. Oh, yes, and uh, Danny mentions we should, if any listeners are interested to telephone us, they can call 412-268-9728 or to send electronic mail to bob at leftout.info. So, Richard, I wanted to find out what is the state of the status of this bill and what can our listeners or and I do uh, to help it along? Uh, well, the bill was introduced on September 26th uh, by Representative Dan Frankel, and it is in the uh, realm of the House State Government Committee, which uh, uh, it's meeting some opposition from uh, some of the Democratic leadership, Babette Joseph for one, um, and we probably should unpack what the opposition has to say about why they don't want verified voting. Yeah, please do. Uh, I recently spoke with the director of elections in Philadelphia, uh, a very engaging, effective man named Bob Lee. And uh, Bob Lee 
basically feels that human error is what's going to cause a, a problem with the hand counting. And honestly, I feel like we ought to be able to count paper ballots in limited numbers and uh, with refined procedures that should come up with accurate uh, enough totals. I'm also interested in hammering out uh, uh, a few uh, techniques or technologies for creating uh, accuracy within the hand count. I'd like to do that in the state government committee through hearings. So he just says you, you, he doesn't think that a group of people can count ballots and come up with the same number twice kind of thing. Well, uh, directors of elections undergo these sorts of uh, counting procedures after the polls close, and um, clearly there's room for improving how they go about that. These folks work very hard. They have a tremendous amount of experience in this. Um area, and what we need to do is bring them to the table to uh, create some solid solutions for uh, uh, paper audits for 5% of the vote. It, it should be pointed out, too, that, um, you know, we're not, there are many states that do, and, and many jurisdictions that do paper ballots hand-counted, and, and um, I think if it were that difficult, and had been that difficult historically, you know, they would not still do that in a number of states and a number of jurisdictions. But the fact that it might be difficult is not uh, really a good enough reason not to do it. I mean, there's something seductive about running the same, you know, spinning the numbers twice on an electronic machine and knowing with 100% certainty that you'll get the same result the second time. But that doesn't really do anything to make the election publicly verifiable or more legitimate in the eyes of the public. And I think that that's really key. You know, if you have... uh, a hundred people that come into a polling place and you have 120 votes, you know, or if you have a hundred people come into the polling place and you have 80 votes, you know, it's really hard to see where the anomalies are unless you have a way to to check that. And I think that having, you know, we've seen problems. Our organization helped develop something called the Election Incident Reporting System uh, prior to November's election, and it was used uh, around the country by by voters and election protection advocates and uh, came up with some very interesting reports about problems and, and things that were going wrong. Um, one of the problems that we discovered in some places uh, was just just strange glitches that would, and by the way, the word glitch in electronics means it didn't happen the way we wanted it to or we, we expected it to. We don't know why. Um, but there were problems such as in, in North Carolina in Carteret County. There was a voting machine, a paperless voting machine being used there that lost literally thousands of votes. And it, what had happened was it simply stopped recording after a certain point in time. Well, had it had a printer on it, um, no lost votes. You know, it, it's, it's just that simple. Uh, something similar happened in a more recent election in Pennsylvania where uh, one of the machines was set to test mode. So when the voting was done, um, all the votes that had been recorded electronically just vanished because the machine thought they were test votes. Mm -hmm. Um, Had there been a printer attached to that machine where voters were checking as they went, then you would have had a paper record of voter intent that you could have used to reconstruct those votes and solve the problem. Right. So there, there are many. So those, those are those are very specific examples of problems that occurred in, in recent elections. Um, and then I noted that uh, on the web page here that if you go to voteprotect.org, that's what you're talking about, the, the, the place where people could 
uh, could uh, report incidents. Um, in fact, if you look at in the state of Pennsylvania, you, you can go to every state in the union and see how many air, how many reports there were in, the, in that state, and then you can actually within a state you can look around in different counties. So I was looking around Pennsylvania. I found that uh, Pennsylvania had the second highest number of, of reported incidents right. at about f- almost 5,000 um, incident reports for the state of Pennsylvania. And also, I looked at Allegheny County, and it had over 1,000 incidents. Right. So, I mean, it had well, more incidents in Allegheny County than there were in most states, um, which doesn't surprise me, I guess, because, you know, Pennsylvania was one of the states that was highly contested. Was yeah, one of the I was about to say there's a good reason for yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, possibly. yes, because, the, you know, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Florida were, I think, the, the three biggest states that were still, um, you know, too close to call at the end. And, and um, so that's where the pressure was going to be put. And, in fact, as we know from many stories in Ohio, uh, all kinds of crazy things happened. Uh, in Ohio when, um, uh, during the election, which may be not the subject of this show, but I'll mention that we had a previous show uh, on December 7th, shortly after the election, which we ca- talked to a guy named um, Bob Fratakis, who talked about lots of crazy things that were going on there. I think he's actually written a book now about the whole situation, I mean, including things like not enough voting machines uh, in inner cities because, uh, well, they just decided, oh, we don't need them here, even though they knew, you know, within a 1% or a couple of percent how many voters there were going to be there. They just didn't put enough machines in some place and, uh, well, happened to be a Democratic district um, and put them all out in the suburbs. So you had to, these people waiting 10 hours to vote. I mean, to me, that's to me that's a crime that, that people ought to be prosecuted for that. It's not just negligence. It's, just, it's deliberate uh, and it's heartbreaking, too. I'll tell you, I worked in one of the call centers on election night uh, in in Manhattan. In fact, we were responsible for receiving calls at that call center from Pennsylvania. So people who were calling the hotline uh, were coming into the call center where I was. And I talked to a number of voters who, um, through one problem or another, just didn't have that certainty that their vote had been recorded properly. And they said, you know, what can I do? I mean, I, I went there. I, I, I wanted to vote. I wanted to make my voice heard, and now I just don't know if it was. Mm-hmm. And and to me, I think, you know, that's one of the, the biggest reasons. We have a it, – it's our democracy. It's our vote. It's the way that we safeguard all of our other rights is by our, our voting right. And if, if you can't be sure that your vote was recorded properly, um, and you can't with a paperless electronic machine, then that just isn't America to me. Uh, so one of the more. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, one moment. We're talking with Richard King and Pamela Smith about uh, who are representing the VerifiedVoting.org, and uh, we're talking about electronic uh, uh, voting and voter and paper paper audit trail for electronic voting machines. Uh, you listeners are welcome to call us at 412-268-9728. Richard, I'm sorry I interrupted you. Uh, one of the more salient uh, machine malfunctions um, occurred in Mas- in Mercer County where there were 51 presidential votes recorded for 289 voters. And that's without the benefit of a paper trail. But that kind Where's of... Where's Mercer County? Uh, it's in Pennsylvania, sort okay. of western Pennsylvania. Um, so there were a number of those kinds of incidents, Catteret County, Catteret County in uh, uh, South Carolina. North Carolina. North Carolina. Uh, they, they lost 4,500 votes um, over and over again. 30% of the electronic voting machines in the last election lacked a paper trail. Um, that won't be the case whether, uh, whether this law is passed in Pennsylvania or not because the provisions of the HAVA Act, the Help America Vote Act, 
um, requires that there's going to be some kind of paper trail. Um, however, it's not necessarily a voter-verified paper trail, and it uh-huh. won't be a voter-verified paper trail unless we get this legislation passed. And so do you, is, there a, is there a timeline for this? Do you know when it might be reported out of committee and so forth? Is there a schedule associated with the bill, or can it just languish? Uh, it could languish. However, mm-hmm. um, uh, Representative Paul Clymer is chair of the state government committee, and he's been... And he's been a uh, uh, somewhat of a interested and um, almost champion for voter verified paper ballots. Um, I, I think that we have yet to see uh, what's going to happen in the state government committee, but hopefully um, uh, we'll get out of committee and give it a, a shot. The other the other option, of course, um, there's really two ways to win this game. One is at the level of the counties. The counties can buy voter verified paper ballot systems. Uh, regardless of whether House whether Bill 2000 gets passed mm-hmm. or not. Mm-hmm. Um, what we're doing is trying to get uh, EN- ESNS to promote their optical scan voting technology, um, which works in conjunction with something called the Automark. And the Automark is a, a Americans with Disability Act kind of uh, device which creates a, uh, uh, a mark on the paper ballot um, through use of a headphones and um, some sort of a manual sort of Game Boy device. Um, and these uh, actually these systems are actually going to be available for review here in Allegheny County as well as tomorrow um, in Beaver at the county courthouse from 9 to 3, I believe. Um, so there, as I was saying, there's two ways to win this game. One is if, uh, for voter-verified paper ballots. One is through passing legislation at the state level. Um, and then another is to convince your uh, local board of the elections in the 67 counties to uh, uh, choose an optical scan voting system for their county, as they will be doing in the next two and a half, three months. And so House Bill 2000, is it, uh, does it mandate the use of electronic uh, voting machines, or no. it simply says if there are some, then they must have voter verified it paper says trail? if there are some. And I, I think okay. that's a really crucial point. It should be pointed out that, in fact, uh, optical scan systems are much more cost-effective for the counties, despite the fact that you have to print the paper ballots. Uh, the cost of acquisition to buy the optical scan systems with a device uh, that Richard mentioned, for example, for uh, assisting voters with disabilities and voters with different language abilities to cast their ballot on paper, um, the cost is lower because you, you need so many fewer machines. Um, with a DRE or a electronic voting precinct, you need uh, multiples of the machine. You need probably four, six, ten, twelve, depending on the population, how many voters are expected. Um, with optical scan, you need one scanner and you need one ballot marking device. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because people you can put as many people in the polling places can fit in and still mark their paper privately because most people are just hand-marking their paper. For the few voters that need uh, to use uh, an assistive device, you've got the one uh, piece of equipment for that purpose, and then everybody just scans their ballot. And the scanning takes a mere second or two. It doesn't take hardly any time. But when you're voting on an electronic machine, you know, it takes several minutes. So there's a limit to how many voters can actually, and, you know, it can be one of those things that lends itself to long lines. So there's a there's a real urgency about this for Pennsylvania and for some other states too right now that have not yet uh, you know bought voting systems to meet the requirements of the Help America Vote Act, which does say there will be 
one uh, accessible voting system per polling place uh, by January 1, 2006. Mm -hmm. It doesn't say it has to be an electronic voting machine. It does say that it has to be accessible. Um, and so counties are in this, in this position where they have to make a decision about what to buy. They're looking for leadership to the Secretary of State whose responsibility it is to certify voting systems for purchase. And in the meantime, there's the backdrop of the possibility of passage of a voter-verified paper record bill. And the counties are aware of this now, and they're starting to look at what kind of equipment they can get that would comply when the bill gets passed. There's one other way to win this game that Richard didn't mention, right. and that is there's a federal bill, um, which is quite similar, in fact, to the Pennsylvania bill, HB 2000. And, and the federal bill already has 156 co-sponsors, bipartisan co-sponsors on it. And um, with, as I said, more than half the states in the country having done something uh, to require voter-verified paper records, this will happen. And it will happen in Pennsylvania, whether it happens this session or next, whether it happens this year or next. And at some point, the counties want to know that they're spending the money wisely, you know, that they're not going to have to go back and retrofit or replace equipment that didn't meet this, this need. Okay, and I think most importantly, so really that each county knows they've got something verifiable that their voters can rely on. Mm -hmm, super. Okay, so we urge our listeners to uh, look at pa-verifiedvoting.org, which Richard King is running and which has a uh, forum in it so that you can send uh, a statement of your support to your representative in the State House. So we hope we can get that passed. And thank you very much, Pamela Smith, for appearing on Left Out. Richard King, thank you very much for appearing on Left Out. Thank we you. We will take a brief break, and we'll be back uh, in a few moments. Thanks for listening. Thanks. The next uh, topic we'd like to discuss uh, is a bit of a local interest, immediate interest here at Carnegie Mellon and in Pittsburgh, which is the uh, Carnegie Mellon has recently uh, put forth a new or revised or reiterated policy on controversial speakers, which is linked to from the leftout.info webpage, uh, which was done in a response to, which was prepared in response to uh, rather a lot of controversy last spring here on campus, uh, both at the University of Pittsburgh and uh, at Carnegie Mellon, because of speakers who uh, whose political views were uh, particularly uh, unpopular. Uh, Danny, I wonder if you might summarize some of what happened last right. spring. Right. So, so last spring, uh, there were three speakers uh, coming to CMU, um, Malik Zulu Shabazz, Ali Abu Nima, and Norman Finkelstein were all scheduled within about a month. And um, <clears throat> specifically, there were some Jewish groups who found all three of these speakers particularly um, uh, offensive or, or um, upsetting. Um, and um, so in the case of um, Abu Nima, who's a, who's a Palestinian, uh, well, I guess he's immigrant to the United States. He lives here now, but he's of Palestinian um, origin, and he, he's very articulate. Of University of Chicago. Yeah, he's a brilliant, very articulate uh, speaker uh, on the whole matter of the, the, the Palestinian-Israeli problem. And um, the um, what ended up happening with, with in, his, in his talk, they, um, the Jewish group, um, some Jewish groups in Pittsburgh organized uh, a system where they tried to fill up the hall so that uh, other people who, who wanted to see the, um, Abu Nima's talk couldn't get in. They just sort of packed the hall and made it very difficult to get in. They had, I guess, a lot of protesters outside the hall and signs and, and 
um, the whole incident was sort of a mess. And then uh, when, when Finkelstein was the next speaker, he's from um, DePaul University, he was supposed to come here and ended up, uh, the university ended up postponing or uh, his, his talk, I guess, to let the, the, the campus calm down for a while, but he eventually did come here and give his talk. But actually, um, he, the, the, they took the unusual uh, action of, of allowing a rebuttal uh, at, right after his talk so that uh, the people who didn't agree with him could, could have a say right in the same form, which is pretty, pretty much, as far as I know, is unheard of uh, to, 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 to do that to a speaker here on, on this campus. Um, so right. uh, I guess uh, as a result of all this, 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 these activities and these things that happened, um, a bunch of professors wrote a letter uh, to the Tartan. Um, we have a link to it on our website here. Uh, in which they said we really need to revise the the controversial speaker policy to make it clear, you know, what, what we're doing and why we're doing it, and uh, um, to make sure that there was to really to protect the uh, the rights of of the, the student groups, for example, to invite speakers and have those speakers uh, be be able to be heard and not be blocked by people who don't like what they have to say. Um, so, uh, I guess. There was a oh yeah another thing that the, another motivation for that whole um, that whole incident was a uh, Columbia professor uh, Joseph Massad of Columbia who um, apparently he's got he's a Palestinian I also has gotten in all kinds of trouble being accused of anti-Semitism and stuff on, on the Columbia campus um, so anyway I don't know if you want to continue that's about all I mean there's right, so they drafted so they, a new policy so the draft policy is uh, kind of you know mom and apple pie it's really hard to uh, disagree with the statement uh, the sentiments that are expressed in the policy uh, emphasizing the importance of free speech and emphasizing the importance of airing ideas regardless of whether they're controversial and giving but people the, giving people assuming people have the intelligence to cut through stuff that's nonsense and make their and own make decision. their own judgment that's um, right. yeah, yeah. That, that's exactly right however I think the previous policy more or less said that as well and it, it didn't seem to me I didn't compare them word for word or anything yeah. but it didn't seem to me that there was any significant difference here so really the proof will be in the doing and seeing how things are conducted, and uh, we'll find find that out. I mean, you mentioned a moment ago that, for example, when Norman Finkelstein spoke, uh, those of you, our listeners, who may or may not be aware, Norman Finkelstein is a very, very controversial uh, author. He's a professor of uh, political science at DePaul. He's written a number of books that are critical of Israeli policies in the Middle East and critical of uh, people who promulgate them in particular and their motives. And uh, the university, his uh, lecture was postponed, actually, after Ali Abu Nima. Uh, I think it was under threat of being canceled, and then it was rescheduled. And then there was uh, adding a uh, – he was uh, forced to have a rebuttal by a, a professor uh, in the engineering public policy department here who was to speak in response to, uh, to Professor Finkelstein's uh, lecture. Uh, I have to say, as a matter of my own opinion, that he, he didn't do his cause – any good uh, <laughs> with his rebuttal, his final yeah. rebuttal, actually thought I mean, was, the was theme, rather an embarrassment. It basically said that, well, he noted that other um, Nazi or other yeah, radical websites names, yeah. point to point to Finkelstein's site as though that's some sort of indictment of the, the factual basis of what Finkelstein had to say. Uh, exactly. So there was no discussion of any of the facts that, uh, that underlie uh, Finkelstein's argument. So as uh, Professor Smalls from EPP, I think, really didn't... Uh, 
really, I, I personally, I felt embarrassed for Carnegie Mellon, and I felt embarrassed for the cause because the presentation was poor. Uh, Norman, Norman Finkelstein uh, made the very apt point at the end of his lecture. He said I, I, he, that he objected in principle to the to the insistence on there being on there on there being uh, a, a rebuttal. Uh, a rebuttal uh, although he was grateful that at least the university didn't cancel the lecture entirely, which well, has happened to him on a number of occasions. But he wanted to know that, uh, given that there is uh, going to be a rebuttal, he wanted to know that if the next time uh, they had a speaker come through to speak on, for example, the Nazi Holocaust, whether they would in fact schedule a rebuttal by uh, a, a Nazi Holocaust denier. Uh, uh, in order to uh, provide uh, fairness and balance in the presentation. Well, I think to ask the question is to answer it because, of course, uh, it's preposterous to imagine that uh, if someone were to come through and speaking uh, on, on that topic that there would be uh, a specially organized rebuttal uh, to uh, to uh, assert that the, everything that the person said was, uh, in fact, just exhibiting, for example, anti-Germanic uh, racism rather than yeah. uh, actually discussing the merits or the, 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 the facts of the case. So one funny thing that, that happened regarding that incident was that they tried to de- delay. They, mm-hmm. they, they wrote Finkelstein a note saying, uh, well, um, please postpone your talk. We, we have to postpone your talk. And uh, that was the university wrote him a note. Yes, that's um, right. And his, his response to that was, well, uh, the student group who invited me has not told me to cancel my talk. So unless I hear from them, I'm going to show up at the appointed time, at the appointed place, and give my talk because they invited me, and I, you know, I'm, I'm ready to come. And I think that threat, um, I think he would have carried it out. And if he had, I would have promoted the talk to yeah. make sure it got publicity as, as much as I could. So that's the and, reason uh, they Then he would have done it, it yeah. anyway. So it. it but so the I rebuttal think, was a kind of an appeasement. I mean, the the arguments as I heard them were that well, uh, I. Uh, uh, putting myself in the position of someone who's objecting was saying that, well, I would be offended by what Norm, or I am offended by what Norman Finkelstein has to say, therefore he shouldn't be allowed to say them. And, or rather, I should say, the university shouldn't be inviting him to speak, or the student organization shouldn't be inviting him to speak, or rather, since the student organization has invited him to speak, it should be canceled because, well, this is offensive speech. And that just doesn't seem to be, uh, that just doesn't seem to be a, a valid yeah, argument. I think the valid, the, the I, the right way to respond to this, if if you don't like the speakers that are coming, Bring invite your speakers. own speakers. Yeah, invite, exactly. yeah. you know, uh, not, uh, Dershowitz. Uh, what's his first name? Uh, Alan, Alan Dershowitz, Dershowitz uh, who who uh, who's a big Israeli booster, Israel Recently booster. Invite him to give a talk. That's fine. That that's, that should be the response. Uh, in fact, one of the the, the uh, Finkelstein's latest book is uh, be called Beyond Hutzpah. It's about one of the, among other things, tearing apart uh, um, Dershowitz's uh, latest book about. Um, in support of Israel. The case for Israel, it's yeah. called. Yes, that's right. And so uh, th- so I guess the, the, my main point here is simply that uh, I think the university has said the right things uh, in, in terms of reiterating its, uh, its policy and controversial speakers. I think the university very recently has not done the right things in dealing with controversial speakers, and it remains clear it remains to be seen how the university will act should uh, should this kind of thing come up again for example uh, if we i think there was also uh, last year wasn't there also a speaker who was uh, representing the blank black panthers right yeah and i think that was Shabazz, the first right? the first one uh, exactly, yeah right. that i mentioned was another uh, was another another incident i mean there there could be any in principle, there could be any number of such incidents of, of speakers who are bound to raise people's hackles. And so then the question is, uh, how will the university handle them? So but let's hope we'll do it better. One of the scary things to me is that um, 
it's possible that uh, if enough noise is made, potential donors to the university could be convinced um, to cut back on their donations because of this. And I think that would be a, a, a bad consequence, but it's a powerful lever that could be used to, 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 you know, to block the speakers that they don't like. I think that's right. I mean, and uh, I think that's probably what's the subtext of all of this is what's going on is that it's really a question of offensive to people who are influential. <laughs> so yeah. if people who have influence, whether it's through money or through political clout or one reason or another, uh, if they're offended, then, of course, the university feels that it, that it has to act and uh, to uh, – to uh, w- would have to act to uh, to do something to try to uh, appease them, and I think that that's really uh, contrary to the to the core goals of a university. So we'll see how this goes. So we want to mention also, though, that there's uh, a letter uh, to President Cohen, which we have linked on the uh, Left Out website from Ali Abu Nima, uh, objecting to some discussion in the uh, Tartan article. Oh right, yes, uh, you yes. Might want to go ahead. Right, Dan. there was an article in the Tartan about the new committee. Um, I think it was recently, a few days ago, um, about the committee, the new, the new uh, uh, controversial speakers policy and, and stuff. And the, the article uh, quoted a guy um, from the Hillel organization, uh, Mr. Aaron Weil, uh, quite a bit. And uh, it's uh, his uh, statements that uh, these were messages of hate that were being brought and that they were anti-Semitic messages of hate being brought to the university. Uh, and Abu Nimo was, was pretty upset about this because uh, the author of the article didn't call up and ask uh, Abu Nimo, well, were you bringing messages of hate and, and sort of uh, get, getting or any you know contrary uh, his statement, which is in fact he wasn't. His me- bringing he says it messages of peace is what he says. And if you if you listen to and I did listen to his talk actually I couldn't go to CMU because it was too full, so I had to go to hear him at Pitt and I did and it's a, he's a brilliant speaker and extremely. Um, articulate, fact-based, and um, rational. Um, so, um, but the, he, he was he wrote this letter, and part of the letter was about uh, how he felt that the, the, the Tartan article was kind of one-sided uh, in, in, in mis, mis, you know, allowing the, his opponent to, to basically smear him, um, uh, which, uh, you know, that's that's something that, to get annoyed about. Um so anyway, there's a link to the letter as well as uh, other information about this incident on our website, um, and we'll see uh, we'll see we'll see how it plays out uh, and see uh, how the uh, policy plays out next uh, next uh, next semester. Well, we have only a minute remaining and left out this week, and we had a couple of other topics uh, that we wanted to discuss. Uh, I think at this point uh, we only have a short period of time to mention them. So I suppose the the biggest one is the uh, the uh, the uh, the ever accelerating spiral of dissent into uh, into uh, into a, a morass of corruption uh, in the Republican Party. The Republican Party, if you can believe it or not, the uh, the the moral the moral authority. Uh, the the uh, the arbiters of morality for the nation are seem to be uh, demonstrating just what they mean by morality. Yeah. Most recently, we have uh, that the uh, the bug man, uh, Tom Delay, may well find himself exterminated from the <laughs> house if he uh, is thrown. He's now currently charged with money laundering and conspiracy to launder money, which could garner him, with any luck, a uh, a life uh, a life sentence in prison. And I'm with Howard Dean. We'll close this program saying, as Howard Dean said recently, Tom Delay should go back to Texas and serve his prison sentence at the expense of the Texas taxpayer. All right, that completes our program for this week. Uh, Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Matt Horniak for producing today's program. We'll see you in two weeks' time.